Hello, women of NABC and others who may be tuning in to listen to the Women's Bible Study. I'm very honored that Bev asked me if I'd be willing to teach for one of our studies in the Psalms, and I'm sad that we're not in person, face-to-face, while we study, but grateful that we have the technology to stay in touch and connect it during this season. Today, we'll be examining together Psalm 56. Let's start with a word of prayer. Dear Father, we thank you for this time that we can gather as women to study your word. We are grateful, Lord, that though we are not able to meet physically, that through your spirit, we are united as one body in Christ. We pray that through these times you would draw near to us, that you would be our source of comfort and of strength. We pray that you would especially be with those who are finding this season of life difficult. As we turn to your word, We pray that it would nourish our souls this day. May it instruct us in your ways. May it reveal your truth to us. And may we be transformed for the sake of your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Normally, I might begin our time of study by first reading the passage that we'll be examining together. However, I think to fully hear and allow the psalm to speak to us today, it is worth spending some time first looking at the context within which the psalm is composed. If you'll look with me at the top of Psalm 56, it reads, to the choir master, according to the dove on far off terebinth, a miktam of David, when the Philistines seized him in Gath. The first portion of that description is most probably directions for the tune to which the psalm is sung and a reference to the smaller collection of psalms. It belongs within. But the latter portion is where I want us to focus our attention momentarily so that we can situate ourselves within the context that gave rise to this petition and voiced such explicit trust in God. You'll note that the context is when the Philistine seized him in Gath. For now, you can just follow along with me as I briefly recap David's recent life events prior to this present situation. But if you want to look at it in more detail, I encourage you to read 1 Samuel, starting in chapter 17 up until chapter 21. David, the shepherd boy, anointed by Samuel to be king, comes from tending his father's sheep onto the scene of the epic battle of the Philistines against Israel. The Philistines' champion is Goliath of Gath, who is mocking and taunting the Israelite army. Note where Goliath is from, Gath, and David with righteous indignation and fully trusting in the Lord, takes on Goliath and defeats him. And the Philistines suffered a huge loss at the hand of the Israelites. At this point, David is taken into King Saul's service and is recruited to serve in Israel's army. Soon he's promoted and set over Israel's men of war and wins many battles against the Philistines. David is successful because the Lord is with him. He's so successful that Israel loves David. The women come to greet the returning army with singing and dancing, saying, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. This provokes Saul to great jealousy, and Saul's previous pleasure in David turns to envy, bitterness, and hate, which bears the fruit of several murder attempts. In quick succession, we read that Saul attempts to pin David to the wall with his spear twice, tries to set him up in a battle against the Philistines so he might die by their hands instead, 
attempts to plot with his servant and his son Jonathan, who is David's best friend, to kill him. But Jonathan persuades Saul in this instance not to kill David. Then after David wins another great victory over the Philistine, Saul again tries to throw his spear at David. After that failed attempt, Saul sends messengers to watch David at night that he might kill him in the morning, but David escapes through the window. It is at this point that Jonathan, again attempting to intercede on David's behalf, realizes that his father is intent and determined to kill David. For Saul was David's enemy continually. So Jonathan warns David to leave, and in 1 Samuel 21.10, we read, And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. In this short recap, we have noted that Saul has attempted to take David's life six times, and David, duly afraid, flees for his life, and he flees out of the land of Israel into Philistine territory to the king of Gath. What fear must have been in David's heart to flee to Israel's arch enemy, the Philistines, a people who had numerous times been on the losing side of David's conquest? And how distraught must he have been to choose the city of Gath, where Goliath was from, their slain champion? It's an odd place for David to seek refuge. And we see that David quickly realizes he's out of the frying pan and into the fire. The servants of King Achish remind him that this is David, whose fame is so widely known that even they know the Israelites sing about his successful conquests. And David, taking this to heart, acts like an insane madman to escape falling into their hands. So, with all of this fresh in our minds, let's read Psalm 56 together. I'll be reading from the ESV. Psalm 56. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God, whose word I praise, in God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? All day long, they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps as they have waited for my life. For their crime, will they escape? In wrath, cast down the peoples, O God. You have kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back. In the day when I call, this I know, that God is for me. In God, whose word I praise. In Yahweh, whose word I praise. In God, I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you, for you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. In this psalm, we read of the same David, a man full of faith, 
who proclaimed that God saves to the Philistine army when he defeated Goliath. As again, placing profound trust and expectation in his God, Yahweh, to act on his behalf to save his life. And finding himself in a precarious situation, one in which he is oppressed on all sides and he is fleeing for his life, he pens this psalm as a prayer. Although we might not be fleeing for our lives and have probably not encountered numerous murder attempts, we have all had moments in our lives when we have been afraid. Perhaps this has been because of a particular situation we have found ourselves in or health diagnoses or even a global situation such as COVID-19 unfolding around us. The reality is that there are many uncertainties in life and there are a variety of ways that we experience being afraid. Or perhaps some of us resonate with David because we have experienced when somebody has been set against us, who has perhaps slandered our name or is intentionally sought to undermine us. Thus, there is much we can learn from this psalm about bringing these types of situations to God and trusting him in the midst of our difficulties. As we start looking at this psalm, we note immediately that David is not shy to present his case and his petition to God. We can see this in verses 1 and 2 and again in 5 and 6. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day, for many attack me proudly. All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife, they lurk, they watch my steps as they have waited for my life. After our brief review of David's life, we know the truth of these statements. Has not Saul been seeking an opportunity, waiting and watching David's every move and plotting to take his life at every presentable moment? A commentator has noted that the word proudly that we see in verse 2 means from a position of power or superior social standing. Has not Saul used his power and authority as king to command his servants to aid him in his plots to take David's life and to send David treacherously into an unfair battle? And in verses 5, injure my cause can be translated twist my words. Would not Saul have had to slander David and twist his words to turn servants who may have admired David to agree to seek his life? And then on top of that, to be seized by the Philistines in Gath and to face the uncertainty of being held by your enemy? How true these words are. And so David says in verse 3, I am afraid. All of these circumstances have converged to make David afraid for his life, and he lays us all out before God. And so we too are invited when we seek God in prayer to honestly and fully present our difficulties and our trials before him. We can approach God with the ways that we have been hurt. We can tell God how we have experienced the situation as unfair, how we have experienced being put down, silenced, perhaps disrespected or belittled. We can tell God our fears, what makes us tremble, how insecure we feel, how we lack courage, or whatever it is that is honestly and truly going through our minds. All the places where perhaps we are silent before others, 
afraid to say how we're really doing. All the inside words that we keep bottled up for fear will be misinterpreted or perhaps seen as dramas, queens, irrational, too emotional, or an inconvenience. All these we are invited to pour out before God. We see by David's example that we are not called to be stoic, to endure the pain, hurt, and suffering of life without showing our feelings or being honest about its effects. Sadly, all too often, this type of demeanor is touted as exemplary Christian living. Too often, we absorb this mentality and adopt all its messages for ourselves. The message that says, suck it up. You don't have it that hard. It's not as bad as so-and-so's situation. Stop your belly aching. Focus on the positive. Look at all the blessings you do have. And while there is often an undercurrent of well-meaning, and sometimes even an attempt at practical advice to move our focus off of dwelling on a negative situation and going down the drain of our emotions that I'm sure we've all experienced as leading only to self-pity and bitterness of heart, I also want to argue that we lose a precious opportunity when we fail to take these times to God in honest prayer. Notice that the psalm does not only recount David's plight, but will move beyond David's plight to his trust in God. I want to make clear that this psalm is not teaching us that we are to allow our situation to dictate how we feel or act or to allow it to frame how we view our lives. However, that being said, this psalm does teach us that God honestly does invite us to express ourselves before him, to tell him the real thoughts and emotions that are present in our lives. After all, what use is there in hiding them when God knows our thoughts before they are on our tongue? For it is when we are truly honest before God that we invite God to truly take note and intervene in our circumstances. Indeed, David knows God is one he can approach honestly because he is sure that God hears and listens. Listen to how David says this in verse 8. You have kept count of my tossings, but my tears in your bottle, are they not in your book? Our God is one who sees, and not just sees as in being observant or all-knowing, but sees in a manner that moves him. He keeps count of our tossings. He treasures our tears in a bottle, the way that water or wine is preserved in a leather bottle or wineskin in an arid climate. Our tears that we cry are precious to God. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever considered that when we come to God in grief and sadness with our feelings of being overwhelmed and afraid that God sees those tears as precious? Have you ever reflected that he keeps a record of each time we come before him with our petitions? Isn't this comforting to know? This verse depicts a God of intimacy, one who has compassion, is moved to be merciful in light of the circumstances of his people. He's a God who, in, in seeing, will then be moved to act. Therefore, we see David presenting his case before God, detailing his ordeal, and stating their effect. All of this has left him afraid. And here we note that David doesn't just say that he's afraid, 
but he indicates what becomes a turning point in his prayer. You can follow in verse 3. It says, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. David takes all of what is going on, the entirety of his circumstances and his reaction to these events, and he decides to actively place his trust in God. And in this way, also instructs us how we are to handle the trials and difficult circumstances of our lives. We tell God the whole situation of what we face, the ins and the outs, how we perceive it, how it makes us feel, and then in utter dependence, we place our lives and the outcome of the situation in God's hand. We put our trust in God. When I am scared, when I am fearful, when I am hurt, when I am betrayed, when I am angry, when I have received bad news, when I feel overwhelmed, when I'm lonely, when I am, and you can fill in the blank with whatever it is that you're facing. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you, my God. Perhaps it's a faltering prayer at this point. Perhaps our next breath is help my unbelief. Help that to be true of me, God. I really want to be a person who can put my trust in you. Some of us are all too aware how difficult it has been to trust God. How quickly after a moment of prayer we seize back the reins of our lives and attempt to rectify the situation ourselves. And yet, we take this step to declare that I put my trust in God, and before God it stands as a prayer of our heart. As we look further at this psalm, we see an interesting transition. David goes from saying, when I am afraid, I put my trust to you, in verse 3, to in verse 4 saying, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? And we see the same phraseology in verse 11. In God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Here is a sturdy statement. It's a statement that reflects complete assurance in God. No longer is it when I am afraid, but I shall not be afraid. Now there is no room for being afraid. And in his rhetorical question, what can flesh or man do to me? We gather a sense that David feels utterly secure and not threatened by the plots and schemes going on around him. It can almost seem arrogant. Has David suddenly become naive, a man of war who has forgotten how a spear can pierce and kill instantly? Has he failed to remember that humans are frail like grass that flourishes like a flower but is gone as soon as the wind passes over it? No, none of that is true. Rather, it is his trust in God that has alleviated his fear. His trust in God is greater than the situation he finds himself in, no matter how dire his circumstances are. And it is with this in mind, David's deep and abiding trust, that I want to draw our attention to two of the verses that may give us difficulty as we study this psalm. They are verses 7 and 9. Verse 7 is, for their crime will they escape, in wrath cast down the peoples, O God. Verse 9, then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. As Christians living in the 21st century, we are all too familiar with questions and concerns about wars or acts of violence committed in the name of God. 
Do these verses unwittingly give fuel to that fire? Do they convey an understanding that in somehow praying to God, I can wield his power against my enemy? Do these verses alienate you or make you feel uncomfortable? Or perhaps it's the opposite. As you read this psalm, you resonate with these words all too well. I don't think any of us are immune to at least wanting a little revenge or at least that they would get their comeuppance in the moment of feeling hurt or betrayed, attacked or slandered. Maybe your temper flares quickly and you retaliate with hot words of anger. Or perhaps it smolders inside you and you lay on your bed rehearsing how you will gain revenge or say just the right thing that will take them down a notch and cut them to the core. Does this psalm endorse that type of thinking or behavior? I would argue that the logic of the psalm is actually in the opposite vein, and it goes back to that deep and abiding trust in God. When David prays these lines, what he is actually doing is leaving the situation in God's hands. Would he like his enemies to be cast down and turned back? Without a doubt, yes. But he is not going to use God in achieving his personal vendetta, no matter how justifiable. For those familiar with David's life, you'll recall that after this event, David continued to spend a considerable amount of time evading Saul. On a couple of occasions, Saul is within David's grasp to easily kill, but instead David spares Saul's life, saying that his hand should not be lifted up against the Lord's anointed one. It would have been easy for David, and in the sight of his men, to say that God had given Saul into his hand, to justify it by rationalizing that he too was the Lord's anointed, appointed to have the kingdom because of Saul's rebellion. And if we're honest with ourselves, don't we sometimes lean towards this type of behavior or thinking when in tough circumstances? We are tempted to put all our weight and energy behind resolving, fixing, shoring up our defenses, appeasing, withdrawing, or whatever it is that we do when we face difficulties. Yet David instructs us in a different way. He waits. He waits in prayer for God to intervene, for he knows that vengeance belongs to God. In utter trust and dependence, David waits for God to act. How is such trust formed? How do we develop a trust so deep in God that all the trials and sufferings we face pale in comparison? How do we become women who can say with the same amount of certainty that David does, In God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? How do we become women who wait on God to intervene in our circumstances? The answer is in what comes immediately before these statements. Look with me at verses 4 and 10. In God, whose word I praise. In Yahweh, whose word I praise. Here is the hinge of the psalm. This is what David's fear, this is what takes David's fear and gives him the assurance to say, he shall not be afraid. He has placed his trust in God, whose word he praises. What does this mean? What is David saying when he says, God's word is praiseworthy? I think what comes to mind for most of us is that God's word, as in scripture, is praiseworthy. 
And for a detailed study on this subject, listen to Eva's excellent teaching on Psalm 19 from last week, where she delves into how the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. And most certainly, God's law, the Torah, which would have been David's primary scripture, is praiseworthy and rightly leads us to worship and should elicit our praise. But is this what David was saying when he says, whose word I praise? Well, not meaning less than this. There is, I think, also another way in which it is possible that David meant these words, whose word I praise. That is not unrelated to the entirety of scripture, but it is perhaps a bit more focused. To unpack, I'm going to take you quickly to Exodus 3.14. This is the middle of the narrative of Moses and the burning bush, which with which some of you are probably very familiar. And for those who aren't, I encourage you to read the entirety of Exodus chapter 3. But for our purposes today, we'll be focusing on verse 14. Moses has just asked God how he should respond when the people of Israel ask, what is his name, to his declaration that the God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now, in Hebrew thought and theology, a person's name corresponds to his character. Or to put it another way, a person's name reveals the essence of who that person truly is. So the question isn't merely just, how do we address this God who is going to deliver us? But rather the question is, who are you? What is your essence? What is your name? And God responds saying, I am who I am, or also translated as, I will be what I will be. It can seem rather cryptic to us, but essentially God is saying, I will act fully in accordance with who I am. And so what unfolds in a proper understanding of God is that his word and his act are one. He cannot act in a manner that goes against who he truly is. There is no duplicity in God, no deceit, no promise that is not kept. He is not two-faced. He doesn't speak out of both sides of his mouth. He doesn't say one thing to someone's face and then another to their back. He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. David, having grasped this and being rooted in this manner of thinking, can then say, I put my trust in God, whose word I praise. Why does he praise God's word? Because God's word is his act. God's word never goes forth and fails to accomplish what it has been set forth to accomplish. There is no uncertainty in having received God's word that God will not act on his behalf. God's word and God's action are one. Now, just as an aside, that in our experience, our sense of timing can be very different from God's sense of timing. We cry out to God how long, often because we sense delay and uncertainty in God's action. Moreover, our interpretation of how God should act can often be different from God's purposes and plans. And while we may wrestle with what seems to be God's perceived indifference, he is often moving under the surface to bring about his will within our lives. Hence, why in utter dependence and through the maturing of our faith, we learn to say in the midst of trials and difficulties, like David does in this psalm, I put my trust in God, whose word I praise. And I wonder if while penning this psalm, 
David was recalling previous times when God had spoken to him or acted on his behalf. I wonder if his mind replayed the moment when Samuel anointed his head with oil as the future king of Israel. And I wonder if he took comfort in recalling these and reminding himself that God's word and God's action are one. Or as one commentator put it, God is as good as the promise God makes. And I wonder if that is why, with such confidence, David is able to say in verse 9, This I know, that God is for me. What does this mean for us today? For we know there are many voices that, like the siren call, would like us to believe this means that God will do whatever we want him to do for us. There are those who would say this is God's promise to make us make us healthy and wealthy and successful in all our undertakings, that God would be like our own personal genie in a bottle. Yet when we look to scripture, we find that while God does bless and give us many good gifts, we must interpret this verse within the full context of the Bible. And when we look there, we see that where God has been most for us has been at the cross on Calvary. Just this past weekend, we observed Good Friday, where we were reminded of the utter and complete self-giving of Jesus, God's Son, on our behalf. He held nothing back, but in love gave his all to ransom for himself a wayward and rebellious people, a God so committed to keeping his word and promises that he took upon himself the sin of all humanity so that we might become his righteousness, so that we might become clean that we might know once and for all the goodness and mercy of God. I beseech you, sister in Christ, when you are in doubt of God being slow to keep his promise, in doubt that he cares, in doubt that he sees and takes note of your tears, look to the cross and see what was accomplished there. And remember, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Romans 8.32 It is for this reason that Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.20, For all the promises of God find their yes in him, him being Jesus. Jesus is God's word, the word made flesh, the exact image of the invisible God. Jesus is God's act his word pronounced, his promise kept. Ultimately, Jesus is the word to be praised. What do we do with such love? How do we respond to a God who is for us this much? Let us turn to the final two verses of Psalm 56, verses 12 and 13. I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you. For you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. We respond to God's outpouring of love with worship. How could we do anything less when we have come to realize how much he has given to redeem us and to what lengths he went to claim us as his own? We give thanks, we adore him, and we make known his deeds to others. For as David says, for those who have placed their trust and their confidence in God, he has delivered our soul from death, yes, our feet from failing, falling. 
that we may walk before God in the light of life. Notice the play on words, from death to life, from falling to walking. This is what Jesus Christ has accomplished for us. He has brought us from death to life, and we have an eternal inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. What can flesh do to us? He has rescued us from falling to walking, that we may walk according to his purposes in grateful obedience, delighting in his commandments, and praising him, for we are assured that God is for us, and we can fully put our trust in him. Let us end by praying together. Father God, we are grateful that you are a God we can fully trust. We thank you that in Christ Jesus, you have given your all. You have held nothing back, and that you are a God who continues to meet us and act on our behalf. We praise you for you are a God to whom we can bring all our praise, all our petitions, all our cares knowing that you hear and that you take note. May we be women, Lord, who would grow in the sure knowledge that you are for us. May we grow in our ability to depend on you for all things pertaining to life and holiness. And Lord, may we grow in our ability to praise you wholeheartedly, to give you our all in return. And may we walk in your ways in joyful obedience for the sake of your glory. May we give you all the glory and honor that is due your name. This we pray in the name of your precious Son, Jesus. Amen.